Welcome to The Pipette, a podcast on science, scientists and the history of science, dispensed in small doses on the state southward. My name is Balram and I hope you will find these brief snippets of science stories interesting. In this episode, we will consider a question that is often asked. Is economics a science? And a corollary, has science influenced economics? In the aftermath of the Karnataka elections, politics and politicians occupy center stage. I have often wondered whether there is a method in the madness of politics. Is there a science of politics? Curiously, there are courses and degrees in political science in our universities, but professors and students of the subject would be quick to disown any connection with science. Since politicians are elected to govern, one would imagine that economics must be a subject that might be usefully learned by aspiring politicians and administrators. Politics and finance seem inextricably linked, with every politician needing money in large amounts to fight elections and every political party aware of the need to buy legislators after a close election. Money in large amounts can only be made by businesses, legitimate and illegitimate. Is there a science of making money? Are the methods of science making inroads into the domains of economics and finance? Mathematical economics and mathematical finance are subjects that have been taught in Western universities for a long time. Their names clearly indicating the importance of quantitative analytical thinking in these areas. Ten years ago, in 2008, at the time of the stock market crash in the United States, when major investment banks collapsed, there was a great deal of soul-searching on the dangers of relying on quantitative models of markets that were vigorously promoted by investment bankers trained in mathematical modeling. What are the connections between finance and the physical sciences? Can we trace their origins? The connections between physics and finance go back a long way in capitalist or free market economies. The theory of Brownian motion has a precursor in Louis Bachelier's study of the fluctuations in the prices of stocks and shares, which he suggested could be viewed as a random walk. His PhD thesis, published in 1900, was entitled The Theory of Speculation and was concerned with option pricing of stocks, arguably the paper that founded the discipline of mathematical finance. Bachelier's treatment of Brownian motion preceded Einstein's famous paper of 1905, suggesting that mathematical methods that intruded into finance at the beginning of the 20th century may have also cemented the connection with physics. Nearly a century later, Myron Scholes and Robert Merton were recognized for their work on developing a new method for the pricing of derivatives with the award of the 1997 Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics. 
This method is now popularly called the Black-Scholes method. Terms like financial engineering, which began to appear in the popular literature several years ago, suggest that quantitative methods and modeling have made great inroads into the domain of banking. The term engineering is frequently used loosely as a suffix. Genetic engineering, a term used in biology, geoengineering, a term used in climate science, and social engineering, a term used in politics, are examples. In all these subjects, the outcomes of engineering are far from certain, a far cry from conventional engineering disciplines. After all, there is little room for error in the design and engineering of chemical plants, power plants, nuclear reactors, aeroplanes, skyscrapers, dams and bridges. For nearly 30 years, Wall Street investment banks have hired PhDs in physics and mathematics to man the derivatives trading desk. These quantitative analysts, called quants, key figures in investment banking firms, were in the spotlight during the American financial crash 10 years ago. Did a completely misplaced faith in quantitative modeling lead financial institutions in the West to the brink of disaster? The consequences of the collapse of banks and insurance companies, which provide risk covers for loans, can damage large numbers of individuals and, indeed, entire societies. In the globalized economy, the shocks are felt almost everywhere. Should not the subject of financial engineering and the assumptions that underlie quantitative analysis be scrutinized more rigorously and the applications of the tools of the trade be regulated with greater diligence? At the height of the post-mortem following the crash, the scientific journal Nature published a provocative essay that argued that economics needs a scientific revolution. The author, Jean-Philippe Bouchard, notes that compared with physics, the quantitative success of economic sciences has been disappointing. He went on to ask, and I quote, What is the flagship achievement of economics? Only its recurrent inability to predict and avert crises including the current worldwide credit crunch. End quote. He recalled a view advanced by Newton that modelling the madness of people is more difficult than modelling the motion of planets. Physicists who have entered the field of finance and economics come armed with techniques that allow the prediction of the behaviour of large collections of particles and molecules even though the individuals seem to move chaotically. Order can emerge from complexity and chaos. Bouchard emphasizes that the crucial difference between modeling in physics and economics lies in how the fields treat the relative concepts, equations, and empirical data. His verdict is sobering, and I quote, in reality, markets are not efficient. Humans tend to be over-focused in the short term and blind in the long term, and errors get amplified, ultimately leading to collective irrationality, panic, and crashes. 
free markets are wild markets. End quote. Models ostensibly based on the sound principles of physics and mathematics can be misleading when applied to complex areas of human activity. It would appear that the area of financial risk modeling may be resting on inherently weak foundations. Key assumptions in models may sometimes be hidden from critical evaluation. The journal New Scientist made a harsh assessment in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crash, and I quote, Some financial risk modelers, the quants who have wielded so much influence over modern banking, are saying they know where the gaps in their knowledge are and are promising to fill them. Should we trust them? Their track record does not inspire confidence. Statistical models have proved almost useless at predicting the killer risks for individual banks, and worse than useless when it comes to risks to the financial system as a whole. Modeling and predicting the behavior of monsoons, earthquake, and financial markets are inherently hazardous exercises. The parameters are many, and the assumptions are often untenable. Nevertheless, physicists and mathematicians have been employed in large numbers by Western financial institutions. Skills and familiarity with probability theory, calculus, and partial differential equations have long been a prerequisite for scientists and engineers to obtain well-paid jobs in the financial sector. Nearly two decades ago, a study commissioned by the UK's Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council came to the conclusion that physicists are preferred over mathematicians. The reason advanced by a bank is compelling, and I quote, Physicists want to find the answers to problems. Mathematicians have all the answers and want problems to solve, end quote. Even a decade ago, the gulf between academic research and the requirements of banks seemed unbridgeable. There appears to have been limited progress in the years that have passed. Mathematical modelers are always on the lookout for problems to solve. From biology to economics, the same equations seem to surface. Analogies from physics can sometimes be enlightening, but are most often misleading. Eugene Wigner wondered many years ago about the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics and physics. In today's world, it might be wise to reflect on the ineffectiveness of physics and mathematics in economics. Curiously, economics benefits considerably from another discipline of science, biology. Economics and human behavior can hardly be separated. Behavioral economics is indeed a respectable study, a subject of study in academia. This is a discipline that draws its essential elements from psychology, bridging the gulf between the hard sciences and the softer social sciences. Can behavioral economics economists learn from the long history of studies of animal behavior in biology? Should sociobiology and natural selection become subjects that are routinely taught to students of economics. Is it likely that economists a hundred years from now 
will be more likely to name Charles Darwin than Adam Smith as the intellectual founder of their discipline. The last question is raised and answered in the affirmative by Robert Frank in a book intriguingly titled The Darwin Economy, which was published in 2011. Frank, a professor of economics at Cornell, has subtitled his book Liberty, Competition and the Common Good. He begins by quoting one of the founders of behavioral economics, Amos Tversky, who was fond of saying, My colleagues, they study artificial intelligence. Me, I study natural stupidity. Modern economics traces its roots to Adam Smith's now iconic book, An Enquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, published in 1776. Smith's work must also be viewed in the context of the times. It appeared in the year the American Revolution began, over a dozen years before the French Revolution, well before the Industrial Revolution set in and the British Empire reached its high point. Smith observed and analyzed a predominantly agricultural society in feudal times. He is quoted widely even today, most often inappropriately for his immortal phrase, the invisible hand, which is a favorite with proponents of free markets. He used the phrase only twice in his classic work. In discussing an individual's labor and his contributions to society, Smith penned his famous lines, and I quote, Every individual necessarily labors to render the annual revenue of the society as great as he can. He generally, indeed, neither intends to promote the public interest, nor knows how much he is promoting it. By preferring the support of domestic to that of foreign industry, he intends only his own security, and by directing that industry in such a manner, as its produce may be of the greatest value, he intends only his own gain. And he is in this, as in many other cases, led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of his intention. Nor is it always the worst for the society that was no part of it. By pursuing his own interest, he frequently promotes that of the society more effectually than when he really intends to promote it. End quote. Enlightened self-interest can often benefit groups. For Smith, the invisible hand aligned self-interest and the common good. He is also quoted frequently for his observation on self-interest, where he famously said, and I quote, It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. End quote. Smith was right when he argued that competition benefits consumers, but commentators in later years have argued that Smith never believed that the invisible hand guaranteed good outcomes in all circumstances. We might well ask, whose views are most relevant in the context of modern economics, Adam Smith or Charles Darwin? 
it is evident that unbridled market forces often fail to challenge the channel the behavior of self-interested individuals for the common good. Darwin saw clearly individual incentives often lead to wasteful arms races in biology. In his book, Frank adds, and I quote, the real challenge to the invisible hand is rooted in the very logic of the competitive process itself. He then turns to Darwin and says, one of his central traits was that natural selection favors traits and behaviors primarily according to their effect on individual organisms, not larger groups. Sometimes individual and group interests coincide, and in such cases we often get invisible hand-like results. In other cases, however, mutations that help the individual prove quite harmful to the larger group. This is in fact the expected result for mutations that confer advantage in head-to-head -head competition among members of the same species. End quote. Natural selection, with its imperative of ensuring reproductive fitness in a relative sense, must be understood to explain the natural world. In extrapolating Darwinian principles to the arena of market economics, even perfect competition will not always guide behavior in ways that promote the common good. Individual and group interests often diverge sharply, and in such cases, individual interests generally carry the day. Biological ideas have entered the field of economics. In the future, sociobiologists who study altruism may well relate to Smith's invisible hand, while economists turn to Darwin. Thanks for listening to this Southward podcast. For more news, cultural trends and ideas, visit us at southward.thestate.news. You can listen to all our podcasts on Stitcher, TuneIn and iTunes. Search for Southward. That's S-O-U-T-H-W-O-R-D. 